Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. This is Abdul Nasser Jengda and you're listening to the Qalam Podcast. Before we get started with today's session, I wanted to share a really amazing resource with you. A question that everyone has, a problem that everybody deals with is, how do I focus within my prayer? How do I enjoy my salah? Well, the answer to that question, the solution to that problem is actually quite straightforward and simple. If we understand what we say within our prayer, we'll be able to focus on it, internalize it, and actually get back to enjoying our conversation with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We created a solution to make this possible. It's called Meaningful Prayer. This is a course, a curriculum, a seminar, a workshop that I taught in over a hundred locations all across this country and even in other countries. Tens of thousands of people have taken this course and it has really turned around, transformed their relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Well now, inshallah, you can take the Meaningful Prayer course online. You can take it according to your own schedule, at your own leisure. You can pace yourself. You can go back and review lessons multiple times to really be able to internalize them. Go to MeaningfulPrayer.com to sign up. Share this resource with others so that we can get back to not only just offering our prayers or performing our salah, but we can go back to experiencing a conversation and relationship with Allah. Now, to get on to today's session, inshallah, we're going to be covering the Shama'il Muhammadiyah, the prophetic personality. The following session was recorded at the Seerah Intensive. Bismillahi wa alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah. Oh no, Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in Inshallah continuing with our study of the Shama'il Muhammadiyah the prophetic personality Inshallah today we're starting with chapter number 51 which is about the names of the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam babu ma ja'a fi asma'i rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam the chapter about the names of the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam so starting with the first narration the first hadith qala al-musannifu haddathana sa'id ibn abdurrahman al-maghzumi wa ghayru wahid qalu haddathana an az-zuhri an muhammad ibn jubair ibn mut'im an abihi qala قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم إن لي أسماء أنا محمد وأنا أحمد وأنا الماحي الذي يمحو الله بي الكفر وأنا الحاشر الذي يحشر الناس على قدمي وأنا العاقب الذي ليس بعده نبي In the first narration Jubair bin Mut'im radiyallahu ta'ala anhu says that the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم said that certainly I have Many names, I am Muhammad, I am Ahmad, I am Al-Mahi, the one that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will eradicate, remove disbelief by means of me. And I am Al-Hashir, which means that I will be the first to be resurrected and all the rest of the people will be resurrected after me. وَأَنَا الْعَاقِبْ And I am الْعَاقِبْ الَّذِي لَيْسَ بَعْدَهُ نَبِيٌّ Which means that I am the one to come last, I am the finality, that there will be no prophets after me. So 
to talk about first and foremost the concept here when it talks about the names of the Prophet ﷺ. What does that exactly mean that the Prophet ﷺ has many names? So the scholars have written about this. Alama Suyuti, excuse me, Alama Bajuri, rahmatullahu taala, says. أي الألفاظ الذي تطلق على رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم سواء كانت علما أو وصفا that these are different words that are used to identify the Prophet ﷺ, whether they be actual given names. Alam refers to a given name, a unique given name of a person that they are uniquely identified by. Oh, wasfan. Or this could also be referring to different attributes of the Prophet ﷺ, different descriptions, attributes, characteristics, that again more uniquely identify the Messenger ﷺ. So to remove a little bit of confusion, because it can sound a bit strange for one person to have multiple given names, legal names like we call them. So it's not so much that the Prophet has multiple given names, it's also including the fact that there are many um, beautiful descriptions of the Prophet that more uniquely identify him. Now, <clears throat> Imam Suyuti rahimullahu ta'ala, he has a small uh, article or a booklet, if you will, that he's written. And it's called Al-Bahjatu Saniya Fil Asma'in Nabawiyah, basically complimenting the Prophet ﷺ that this is a beautiful compilation in all the prophetic names. And he says that, وَقَدْ قَارَبَتِ الْخَمْسُ He says that the Prophet ﷺ uh, has up to 500 different characteristics, identifiers, traits that more uniquely identify him. And in it, he shares a particular principle. He says, Al-Qa'idah, the principle is, in That a multitude of names and descriptions and attributes and uh, identifiers actually tells you about the nobility or the prestige of what you're talking about. And so when we look at this particular principle in action within um, the sacred uh, the, the things that are sacred to us in our deen and our religion, starting of course first and foremost with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself. Then of course there's a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ that talks about that God has 99 names. And so that's why there's all the attributes, names and attributes of Allah. وَلِلَّهِ الْأَسْمَاءُ الْحُسْنَى Right, all the beautiful names and attributes of Allah. It tells you about how prestigious and remarkable and magnificent God is, Allah is. And then secondly... We have the Prophet ﷺ that we're studying about right here. And again, a number of different names and descriptions of the Prophet ﷺ only go to reinforce the idea about how remarkable the Prophet ﷺ is. Not only that, but there are some scholars that have also written about the different names of the Qur'an. The Qur'an also has many different names and different descriptions. Um, <clears throat> if you actually go to uh, the... Qalam YouTube channel, uh, there you'll find I did a series of videos about some of the different names of the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this previous Ramadan. Um, but again, Quran, Furqan, Kitab, uh, Dhikr, Maw'idah, Tadhkira, and so, so on and so forth. Many, many different names. And again, that reinforces that same idea that that tells you about how remarkable the Quran is. Many of the great companions of the Prophet some similarly, Abu Bakr, As-Siddiq, um, Khalifatul Rasulillah, 
right? Amir al-Mu'mineen, Umar ibn al-Khattab, al-Faruq, right? And so on and so forth. And, and there's many, many different examples. So this again reinforces that same idea, and this is basically why Imam At-Tirmidhi rahimahullahu ta'ala has brought this particular chapter to highlight and to emphasize this aspect of the remarkable nature and the personality of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa so now looking at the very first narration, the Prophet ﷺ identifies a few different names. The first one is Muhammad. That is the actual given name of the Prophet ﷺ. And of course we, we learned about in the seerah as well that that was a name that was like inspired to the grandfather of the Prophet ﷺ. Some narrations even mentioned to the mother of the Prophet ﷺ. And just to understand the word, and of course we did this in class, the word Muhammad comes from Hamd. Comes from Hamd, which means to praise. And it comes from the particular pattern, which means to repeatedly praise. And so Muhammad is the objective noun, the ism maf'ul. And what that means is that Muhammad, he is the one who is repeatedly often praised. And there's a very beautiful narration where in Sahih Bukhari, where the Prophet ﷺ says something really remarkable, highlights something really amazing about this particular name. The Prophet ﷺ, of course, he was, his name was Muhammad. So when some of the mushrikun of Mecca would try to criticize the Prophet ﷺ, and they would try to slander him and talk ill of him, they would refer to the Prophet ﷺ as Mudhammam. They would refer to him as Mudhammam. Which they were, what they were trying to do unsuccessfully was kind of do a play on words. That basically bringing the same pattern, linguistically speaking, morphologically speaking, sarf-wise, bring the same pattern but from the antonym, the opposite meaning. The bid of Muhammad to try to say <coughs> that he is the one who is repeatedly or often criticized. Wal-ayadhu billah, God forbid. And the Prophet ﷺ said very beautifully, "Ala ta'ajabuna kaifa yasrifullahu anni shatma Quraysh wa la'anahum." He says, "Haven't y'all ever noticed how awesome it is, how remarkable it is, how Allah subhanahu wa taala has deflected from me all the cursing and the slander of Quraysh? Yashtimuna mudhammaman wa yalaanuna mudhammaman wa ana Muhammad." He says they keep on talking about some they keep on talking about some guy named Mudhammam. They curse some guy named Mudhammam. They talk bad about this guy named Mudhammam. Poor Mudhammam. He goes, I have no idea who that is because my name is Muhammad. Right? And so this was something really beautiful. The Prophet ﷺ said, Ibn Qayyim rahimullahu ta'ala similarly has a poem in his Qasida Nuniya, his basically poem, his treatise on you know, the fundamental beliefs of Muslims. Hum yashtumuna mudhammaman wa muhammadun an shatmihim fi ma'zilin wa siyani. Sana al-ilahu muhammadan an shatmihim fi al-lavdi wal ma'na huma sinwani. That basically, he similarly says the same thing, that they curse Mudammam, but Muhammad is completely free and protected from any of their slander. God protected the Prophet ﷺ, Muhammad, from their slander in both uh, word, in terms of the words, and also the meaning, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala completely deflected that from him, because that is not his name. 
So that's the first name of the Prophet ﷺ, Muhammad. The second name that he mentions here is Ahmad. Now Ahmad is a little bit more interesting because that is practically like a second given name to the Prophet ﷺ. Of course we know that the Qur'an mentions the name Ahmad for the Prophet ﷺ in the prophecy of Isa, Jesus ﷺ, when he basically says, وَمُبَشِّرًا بِرَسُولٍ يَأْتِي مِنْ بَعْدِ اسْمُهُ أَحْمَدِ He says that I am here to tell you prophesize and give you the good news of the fact that a prophet will come after me and his name will be Ahmad. And it is also mentioned in some uh, narrations and accounts of the seerah that this name was also inspired to the mother of the Prophet ﷺ and the fact that the mother of the Prophet ﷺ would actually refer to him kind of lovingly as Ahmad. And the name Ahmad basically comes from Ismu Tafdil. It is a comparative noun, but when you, um, when you attribute it to something, Ahmadun Nasi, right, it becomes a superlative noun. And what it basically means is the one who praises the most. Amongst the people, he is the one who praises God more than anyone else. And there's a very interesting reference to that in an authentic narration, a sahih narration, in which the Prophet ﷺ talks about the events uh, of the day of resurrection, the day of judgment. And it says, يُفْتَحُ عَلَيْهِ يَوْمِ الْقِيَامَةِ بِمُحَامِدِ لَمْ يُفْتَحْ بِهَا عَلَىٰ أَحْدٍ قَبْلَهُ That finally, when all of creation will come to the Prophet wasallam, they'll go from prophet to prophet, messenger to messenger, asking them to intercede on behalf of them to ask God to begin the reckoning. And the Prophet wasallam, they will finally keep redirecting to someone else until finally Isa wasallam, will say, you have to go talk to Muhammad وسلم, the Prophet They'll come to the Messenger of Allah وسلم, The Prophet will go in front of God. He will fall down in prostration. He will bow down, put his face on the ground in front of Allah And then the narration says that at that point in time, Allah will basically open upon. Allah will divinely inspire to the Prophet ﷺ, such remarkable and beautiful phrases of praise upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that no one has ever so beautifully praised God before. And so that also seems to allude to, that is also another uh, manifestation of the Prophet ﷺ being Ahmad. He will praise Allah on the day of resurrection, unlike what anyone ever before has been able to do. The third that he mentions here is Al-Mahi. Now this is where it gets into the category of more descriptive names. These are adjectives, uh, characteristics, traits, uh, complementary traits of the Prophet ﷺ. So the first one is Al-Mahi, which again he explains himself, so it really doesn't require a lot of elaboration. But Al-Mahu in the Arabic language basically means to remove, to wipe, to eradicate. We have a modern word to erase. Right? Al-Mahu, to erase. And so the Prophet ﷺ says that God shall remove and erase disbelief through me, by using me. And then the next one that he mentions is Al-Hashir. And again, he explains what that means, but the word Hashar means to gather the people together. It means to bring people forth, to gather people. And the Prophet ﷺ saying, I am al-hashid, which means, that people will be gathered together, and, and if you literally translate it, upon my heels. Upon my heels. And again, we are kind of, we can relate that in English, there's an expression to that effect, which basically means, upon someone's heels means after them. 
ala athari that basically everyone else will be resurrected after me. And there are narrations from the Prophet ﷺ that allude to this, that the Prophet ﷺ will be the first of humanity to be resurrected. And in fact, there's another riwayah, there's another narration in which the Prophet ﷺ clearly says, That people will be resurrected after me. The last, the fifth one in this particular narration is Al-Aqib. Al-Aqib. And al-aqib basically means the one who comes last, the conclusion. Alright, because he is the finality and the seal of prophethood. Um, and that's why basically it comes with the explanation that, um, that there will be no prophets after him. Just a little bit of technical commentary. Alladhi laysa ba'dahu. Many of the scholars mentioned, many of the muhaddithun mentioned, Hadha mudraj min zuhri that this is kind of an explanation given by Imam Zuhri and not, is not from the original wording of the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The next narration, hadith number two. قال المصنف حدثنا محمد بن طريف الكوفي قال حدثنا أبو بكر بن عياش عن عاصم عن أبي وائل عن حذيفة رضي الله تعالى عنه قال لقيت النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم في بعض طرق المدينة فقال أنا محمد وأنا أحمد وأنا نبي الرحمة ونبي التوبة وأنا المقفى وأنا الحاشر ونبي الملاحم So the translation here is that حذيفة رضي الله تعالى عنه says that I met the Prophet ﷺ in the streets of Medina. And the Prophet ﷺ said, I am Muhammad, I am Ahmad, I am the Prophet of mercy, I am the Prophet of repentance, I am the one who is followed, I am the one uh, who will be resurrected, and I am the Prophet of battles. The translation in the book is maybe is the most atrocious translation I've ever seen in my entire life. I need everyone to, I can't even say the word, just to scratch it out. It's just absolutely just horrendous. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. The ummah is special sometimes. The ummah is remarkable. All right. Battles, yes. And I'll explain this further. Okay, so now to explain. The Prophet ﷺ, he is saying here again, Muhammad, we talked about this particular name. Ahmad, we explained this name. And Nabiyyul Rahma is pretty self-explanatory. Prophet of mercy. Rahmatul lil alameen. Wa ma arsalnaka illa rahmatan lil alameen. It's in the Quran that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the Prophet that you were sent as a mercy to all of humanity. Nabiyyul Rahma. The next one is Nabiyyul Tawbah. Nabiyyul Tawbah. And the word Tawbah, of course, we translate it as repentance. The, the word Tawbah basically means to turn around. Somebody's going in the wrong direction and they turn around and get back onto course, get back on track. That is the concept of Tawbah, to turn back to Allah. I am the prophet of Tawbah, I am the prophet of repentance, meaning that I emphasize, I encourage the people to repent to God and to correct their course and their lives. So this is uh, another uh, new word that we're coming across in this particular narration. And what the word muqaffa here means is that I am the followed, 
I'm not sure once again about this particular translation because the word muqaffa, qafa uh, or qafa basically refers to um, following someone, not one who not not one who uh, follows, but not not to follow someone, but the one who is actually followed. Right, the one who is actually followed. That's what it refers to. So there are two ways that this is particularly interpreted. Either it means that, because it can be read in both ways. If it is muqaffi, I'm the one who follows. But who does the Prophet ﷺ follow? He doesn't follow, I mean, that sounds strange to say. Does the Prophet ﷺ follow somebody else's guidance? No, it would mean I am the one who follows, chronologically speaking. I'm the one who followed the others. I follow the other prophets chronologically speaking. Meaning I'm the last of the prophets to come. Khatamul Anbiya. I am the seal of prophethood. But if it is read not as muqaffi but muqaffa. Muqaffi would be the ism fa'il, the active noun. Muqaffa would be the ism maf'ul, the passive noun. The objective noun. If it is the passive noun, then it means I'm the one who is followed. Meaning what? People follow my guidance. We talked about this as well. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, says in the Quran, قُلْ إِن كُنْتُمْ تُحِبُونَ اللَّهَ فَاتَّبِعُونِي That to follow the Prophet ﷺ is mandated, is obligated, is commanded upon us by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We all follow the Prophet ﷺ. And even those who don't are supposed to follow him. So this can be read both ways. Muqaffi means he came after all the Prophets. He is the seal of Prophets. And if it's Muqaffa, which means all of humanity will follow his guidance, will follow his path, alright? The, the next one is Al-Hashid, which we already talked about, which means that he will be the first to be resurrected on the day of judgment. And then the last one is where the question kind of arises, and that is Nabiul Malahim. The word Malahim is the plural of the word Malhama. And that basically refers to two things. It's very interesting. Now this is what I wanted to explain. It refers to two, th two things. The first thing is that the word malhama, linguistically speaking, actually means to gather together. To gather together into one place. So it can also be referring to the fact that I am the prophet who will gather the people together, who will bring the people together. However, however, the classical Arabs did use the word malhama to refer to battle. Because again, it gathers the people together into the battlefield. The way the soldiers line up, that's why they refer to it as malhama. Alright? Ma'khudhum min ishtibakin nasi wa ikhtilatihim fiha. Alright? That because the people all line up and gather together, and eventually the two armies merge together. They become one, they merge together. Alright? So that's why a battle would also be called malhama, which means a gathering. Alright? So. Here it refers to the Prophet ﷺ as the Prophet of battles. So what does this exactly mean? So there are two ways to understand this. First and foremost, some scholars have actually um, critiqued the version of the narration that has this wording in it. That this was something that was added by one of the narrators. Because the version of Sahih Muslim is the following. كَانَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمَ يُسَمِّي لَهُ يُسَمِّي لَنَا نَفْسَهُ أَسْمَى 
that the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, this is narrated by Abu Musa al Ash'ari radiyallahu ta'ala anhu in the Sahih of Imam Muslim that he says that the Prophet sallallahu told us that there were certain names that he was identified by. فَقَالَ أَنَا مُحَمَّدْ وَأَحْمَدْ Alright, that the Prophet ﷺ in the hadith of Sahih Muslim, the authentic version of this narration, he says that I am Muhammad, I am Ahmad, I am the one who is who comes after all the Prophets, or who will uh, be followed by all of humanity, like all of humanity will follow me, or that I am the, and the next name is that I will be the first to be resurrected, I am the Prophet of repentance, and I am the Prophet of mercy, and that's it. It does not mention the version of Al-Malahim, battles, alright? However, there are some other, the, this narration that we're looking at here, many scholars have critiqued it and some scholars have actually critiqued this version and the, challenged the presence of the word al-malahim within it. However, to be completely fair, to be completely fair, there are a multitude of different versions of this narration that mention the word al-malhama. Some mention the singular version, Nabiyul malhama And they are found in the Musannaf of Ibn Abi Shayba, in the book of Dawlabi, in the book of Amun Nu'aym, in the book of Al-Hakim, in even Imam Ahmad in his Musnad has a version of this, and Ibn Sa'ad in his Tabaqat, also has a version of this. So some scholars have suggested that because of the multitude of the different versions, it does rise to the less level of what we call Hassan li It does become an acceptable narration. In the case that we take that particular viewpoint that it does become an acceptable narration, then the explanation for it is that, and again you have to understand the expression, he's basically saying that I am the prophet to whom God granted the license and the ability to be able to engage in warfare. Because there were many prophets of the past. There were many prophets of the past who were never given the license of what's called qital. They were never given the license to be able to retaliate against their enemies. Some prophets were simply told their, 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 their fiqh, their sharia, their law, their legislation was pacifist that they were not allowed retaliation. And in fact, even if we look at the Sharia of Muhammad ﷺ, for the first 13 years, they were not allowed retaliation. Kufu aidiyakum. The portion of the seerah that we've been studying, we talked about this a number of times, they were told, tie your hands. Hold your hands. Kufu aidiyakum. You are not allowed to retaliate. They murdered them and tortured them and persecuted them and they were told, kufu aidiyakum. Keep your hands to yourself. But later on in the Medinan period, they were allowed to retaliate. So the Prophet ﷺ is basically by saying, Nabiul Malahim or Nabiul Malhama, he's saying that I am the Prophet who was granted license to be able to go into the battlefield and to be able to face my enemies and hold them accountable for the wrongs that they have committed. And in that we have no shame. And in that we have no shame. And we, 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 we don't feel the need to apologize. Because that is the right of any sovereign people. And that is part of dignity. Now in the previous shara'ir, in the Meccan period, where Allah had not allowed it, that was the command of God. And that was to be respected. But if we look at it very logically speaking, it is absolutely nothing to be ashamed of or to apologize for. A people have the right to defend themselves. 
And that's exactly what the Prophet did, and that's what the Sahabatul Kiram, Ridwanullahi Ta'ala alayhim ajma'in did. Now if somebody chooses to basically go back and, and try to uh, you know, uh, misconstrue and misrepresent uh, the narrative, and the events of history and how they exactly happened and occurred, then that is disingenuous, dishonest, and a lack of integrity on the part of the people. And that a lot of times is a lot what we call armchair quarterbacking. That's a lot of times people sitting in the comfort of their own homes, sitting on their recliners, and then critiquing about how people should behave in very difficult and trying circumstances. It's lecturing people who are being murdered and brutalized and victimized and, uh, and, and dragged through the streets and being oppressed and attacked and violated, and then sitting here and talking to them about you know, what the appropriate response should be from my very comfortable reclining chair here. right? And it absolutely makes no sense, and we don't grant that critique any type of dignity, and, and we, 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 don't, we don't validate that critique by any means at all. The third narration, and this is just simply uh, another chain of narration that Imam At-Tirmidhi brings. And it seems like Imam At-Tirmidhi brings this particular narration because of the word malahim being challenged. He brings a subsequent narration to kind of emphasize and strengthen that particular wording. قَالَ الْمُصَنِّفُ حَدَّثَنَا إِسْحَاقُ بْنُ مَنْصُورٍ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا النَّبْدُرُ بْنُ شُمَيْلِ قَالَ أَنبَأَنَا حَمَّادُ بْنُ سَلَمَةَ عَنْ عَاصِمْ عَنْ زِرٍ عن حذيفة رضي الله تعالى عنه عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم نحوه بمعناه هكذا قال حماد بن سلمة عن عاصم عن زر عن حذيفة That is just an added chain of narration Inshallah if everyone can turn to the next chapter Chapter number 52 Yes The, it's the Medinan period. It's the Medinan period. So the brother's asking the question that why exactly the Prophet ﷺ, was there some context to why he's mentioning these names? It was a Medinan period, uh, especially Abu Musa al-Ash'ari radiallahu ta'ala narrating it. They came much, much later on. So by that time, the community was very large and very diverse, coming from a lot of different backgrounds. And so it was to give those folks, those people, the appreciation of everything the Prophet ﷺ represents to them. Alright, chapter number 52. باب ما جاء في عيش رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم <coughs> This is the chapter <coughs> Excuse me This is a chapter about the lifestyle of the Prophet of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم Now <coughs> to um, Imam al-Bajuri رحمه الله تعالى basically um, kind of explains what that means. He says, Babu bayani ma warada min al-ahadithi fi kayfiyati ma'ishatihi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ahala hayatihi. That this is a chapter to explain how the Prophet ﷺ lived his daily life. Now, one of the things that I wanted to explain here before we get started, and this is once again... Uh, a very technical point, kind of a historical point, uh, and a little bit of, for lack of a better term, kind of a nerdy point here. But when it comes to the study of this text itself, and the different nusakh, the different editions, variations of this book, then there are two 
there's a different nar- a variation or a different nuscha, a different edition of this book, where this is chapter number 52 in the version that we are reading from. However, there are different versions of some of the other students of Imam Tirmidhi that bring this same chapter as chapter number 23. They brought it a lot earlier within the text, within the book. The reason why some of them mentioned it there was because they bring it in the midst of the chapters that talk about what the Prophet ﷺ used to eat, how the Prophet ﷺ used to sleep. So they felt like it fit very appropriately within there. While you're talking about him eating and sleeping, then you also talk about how his general lifestyle was as well. Some of the scholars have brought it at this particular point, Um, to illustrate the fact and to demonstrate how, because in the last few chapters, we've talked about that the Prophet ﷺ, how his character was. We recently read a lot about the khuluq, the akhlaq of the Prophet ﷺ. So now some of the, the, the additions bring it at this particular point because they feel that after mentioning the character, of the Prophet ﷺ, it also makes a lot of sense to understand the context in which that character operated, right? The character, the, the context in which that character was placed, and that was the general overall lifestyle of the Prophet Wasallam. <clears throat> <clears throat> قال سمعت النعمان ابن بشير رضي الله تعالى عنهما يقول ألستم في طعام وشراب ما شئتم لقد رأيت نبيكم صلى الله عليه وسلم وما يجد من الدقل ما يملأ بطنه النعمان بن بشير رضي الله تعالى عنهما he was a younger companion a Madinan Ansari Sahabi who was a very Diligent student of the Prophet ﷺ, a very dedicated student. He is min al-mukthirin of al-hadith. He is one of the companion who ha- companions who has narrated a very large number of ahadith from the Prophet ﷺ. So he says, and this seems to be that he's saying this some time after the Prophet ﷺ, he's saying, alastum fi ta'amin wa sharabin ma shi'tum, that you find yourselves, he kind of, in, in Arabic the question is in the negative Right, so it's like a rhetorical question, but it makes more sense, maybe translated, that you find yourselves in whatever, you find yourselves in a situation where you eat and drink whatever you want, however, however much you want, whenever you want. However you want, whenever you want, whatever you want, how much you want. Like you find yourself in a lot of luxury. And he, say, and he goes on to say that I saw your Prophet ﷺ and he would not even be able to find, he would not have enough very simple, ordinary, very low-grade dates. He couldn't even find enough low-grade dates that could fill his stomach, that could satiate, fulfill his hunger. <clears throat> Now a couple of things to explain here. The first statement of his, that rhetorical question, that admonition, he is admonishing, these are probably his students or family members, he's admonishing them, he's reminding them, saying, look, you guys live in the lap of luxury. You guys are living it up. And he says, I remember seeing your Prophet ﷺ. Now why does he say your Prophet? It's not his Prophet? Of course it is, but this is a style, usloob. This is a style in the Arabic language that when you want to reprimand someone, you know, maybe like an older brother, 
<clears throat> is reprimanding the younger brother about respecting their father. Or maybe about respecting their mother. So he would say, Abuka. Alaysa huwa Abuka? Alaysa tia ummuka? Is he not your father? Is she not your mother? Now, of course, the one who's saying that, it's his mother as well. It's his father as well. <clears throat> but it's a style to reprimand someone. That you should know better. You know this is your prophet, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So he's saying that I saw your prophet, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. You should know this. And a daqal, the word daqal, I translated as low grade dates. Which basically you see in the translation as well, it says ordinary types of dates. And um, in the Arabic language as well, it's uh, explained as being that ar-radi min tamar Ar-radi min tamar Which basically means the cheapest uh, quality dates. The ones that were very, very simple, very cheap, you know, sold, you know, very, uh, sold for very little money. And the Prophet ﷺ, he says, would not even have enough of those low-grade, cheap dates that would actually fulfill and satisfy his hunger. That's how your Prophet lived. Today, y'all are living it up. The next narration, قال مصنف حدثنا هارون بن إسحاق قال حدثنا عبد عن هشام بن عروة عن أبيه عن عائشة رضي الله تعالى عنها قالت إن كنا آل محمد نمكث شهرا ما نستوقد بنار إن هو إلا التمر والماء The mother of the believers Aisha رضي الله تعالى عنها she says that we the family of Muhammad صلى الله عليه وسلم would go sometimes for an entire month without having the luxury, the ability to be able to light the stove, cook some food. All we had, in huwa, all we had was dates and water. We survived for an entire month consecutively at a time where all we had to eat was date and water, dates and water. <clears throat> The, way, the, the approach that I'm going to take with this particular chapter, insha'Allah, is that I'm just going to go through the narrations, translating them. If there's some you know, interesting, unique uh, vocabulary, I'll explain it. But I won't be adding a lot of commentary until we get through the entirety of the chapter, because this chapter is extremely, extremely powerful. Um, and the, by the time we're done reading all the different angles of the narrations that Imam At-Tirmidhi brings here, it paints a very, very uh, complete picture. And then I'll just wrap up with maybe just some um, concluding comments on the end, at, at the end. قال المصنف حدثنا عبد الله ابن أبي زياد قال حدثنا سيار قال حدثنا سهل بن أسلم عن يزيد بن أبي منصور عن أنس رضي الله تعالى عن أنس رضي الله تعالى عنه عن أبي طلحة رضي الله تعالى عنه قال شكونا إلى رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم الجوع ورفعنا عن بطوننا عن حجر حجر فرفع رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم عن بطنه عن حجرين قال أبو عيسى هذا حديث غريب من حديث أبي طلحة لا نعرف إلى من هذا الوجه ومعنى قوله ورفعنا عن بطوننا عن حجر حجر كان أحدهم يشد في بطنه الحجر من الجهد والضعف والضعف الذي به من الجوع 
Anas radiallahu ta'ala anhu narrates from Abu Talha, who was basically his stepfather. He says that we complained to the Prophet wasallam that we were starving. And we lifted up our shirts to show our stomachs to the Prophet wasallam that we had stone. We had, each person had a stone tied to their stomach. Just to kind of reinforce them. As Imam Tirmidhi explains. And the Prophet ﷺ lifted up his shirt to show us that he had two stones tied to his stomach. Qala Abu Isa, Abu Isa is the kunni of Imam Tirmidhi. Imam Tirmidhi, he comments, he says that this hadith, uh, the hadith of Abu Talha, basically only comes through this one particular route. I'll explain that in just a second. And he says what he means by the fact that we lifted our shirts and each person had a stone tied to their stomach. What he means by that is that what they would do is that they would tie a stone to their stomach because of the hunger and the weakness, that the, 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 the fatigue and the weakness, the difficulty and the weakness that they would be feeling due to being so severely hungry, to be, due to the starvation that they were feeling. Now... A quick note about this particular narration. Once again, um, there are some commentators of uh, hadith from the perspective of Senate, from the perspective of chain of narration, who have cast certain aspersions upon this particular narration. They have reservations about this particular narration. However, the, re- the reason why Imam Tirmidhi brings this particular narration, and he doesn't really have... Uh, a problem with it is because this narration is reinforced and the meaning, what it's saying about a stomach being tied to the, st- uh, a stone being tied to the stomach of the Prophet ﷺ is reinforced within a hadith of Bukhari narrated by Jabir radiallahu ta'ala anhu. He says that, inna yawm al-khandiqi nahfir that uh, for the preparation of the battle of the trench, we were digging the trench. فَعَرَضَتْ كُدِيَةٌ شَدِيدَةٌ So a huge boulder was kind of blocking our way, trying, uh, preventing us from digging the trench. فَجَاءُوا النَّبِيَ صلى الله عليه وسلم فَقَالُوا هَذِي كُدِيَةٌ عَرَضَتْ فِي الْخَنْدَقِ They came and they told the Prophet ﷺ, there's this boulder in the trench and we can't get past it. فَقَالَ أَنَا نَازِلْ The Prophet ﷺ said, I'm coming, I'll deal with it, I'll take care of it. ثُمَّ قَامَ The Prophet ﷺ got up, he came there and the narration mentions that the Prophet ﷺ kind of removed his shirt to be able to get in there. Um, and it says, And there was a stone that was tied to his stomach. Because we had gone three days without eating any food. So this, this, this idea about tying of the stones to the stomach is actually reinforced through an authentic narration that is found in the Sahih of Imam Bukhari. Rahimullah uh, Ta'ala. Hadith number four, narration number four. It's kind of a longer narration. The Arabic you'll find on page 25, then the English translation is on page number 24. This is narrated by... Abu Hurairah radiallahu ta'ala anhu, I'll translate as I go along. خَرَجَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمَ فِي سَاعَةٍ لَا يَخْرُجُ فِيهَا The Prophet ﷺ came out from his home at an hour of the day in which he normally did not come out. 
وَلَا يَلْقَاهُ فِيهَا أَحَدٌ And, you know, uh, you normally would not see anyone else out in the streets. فَأَتَاهُ أَبُو بَكَرْ Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala ran into the Prophet sallallahu met the Prophet sallallahu فقال ما جاء بك يا أبا بكر he said what are you doing out and about right now Abu Bakr he says خرجت ألقى رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم وأنظر في وجهه والتسليم عليه I was coming to see you anyways because I wanted to look at you and I wanted to send peace and blessings upon you basically it's his way of saying I missed you and I felt like seeing you فلم يلبث أن جاء عمر Little while passed and then Umar radiallahu ta'ala came along and joined them. فَقَالَ مَا جَاءَ بِكَ يَا عُمَرَ So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Oh Umar, what are you doing here? قَالَ أَلْجُوعُ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ He said, O oh, Messenger of God, I am extremely hungry. I'm extremely hungry. قَالَ sallallahu alayhi wa sallam وَأَنَا وَقَدْ وَجَدْتُ بَعْدَ ذَلِكَ and the Prophet ﷺ said, I feel hungry as well. That's, brought me, that's what's brought me out at this time of the day. فَانْطَلَقُوا إِلَى مَنْزِلِ أَبِ الْهَيْثَمِ Ibn Tayhan al-Ansari So they went to the home of Abu al-Haytham, Ibn Tayhan uh, al-Ansari radiallahu ta'ala anhu. He was one of the leaders of the Ansari. He was one of those initial people who had come to the season of Hajj and accepted Islam and given the oath of allegiance to the Prophet ﷺ in the first oath of allegiance. وَكَانَ رَجُلًا كَثِيرًا نَخْلِ وَشَّائِي And he was a very uh, blessed individual. He was a wealthy person. He had a lot of date palm trees and he had a huge flock and herd of you know goats and sheep, of animals, livestock. وَلَمْ يَكُنْ لَهُ خَدَمٌ But he did not have any servants. He should do all of his work by himself. فَلَمْ يَجِدُوهُ They came home and they didn't find him at home. So the reason why it mentions that he doesn't have any servants is number one, that's why he wasn't home. And a second reason, because we'll talk, the narration will tell us. فَقَالُوا لِإِمْرَاتِهِ They greeted his wife and they basically said to his wife, أَيْنَ صَاحِبُكِ that where is your husband? She said that he went out to basically go get some sweet water. And I talked about this, we talked about this in the Sira class as well, that the, a lot of the water that was in Medina, a lot of the water that was in Medina, the wells in Medina mostly had very harsh, kind of bitter, like mineral, very metallic tasting water. Um, so it wasn't, wasn't always, you know, the best tasting. So she said that he went out a little bit farther to go to one of the places where there's more sweeter water and he's bringing it back from there. فَلَمْ يَلْبَثُوا They were basically still there waiting very shortly thereafter. أَنْ جَاءَ أَبُوا الْهَيْثَمْ بِقِرْبَةٍ يَزْعَبُهَا Abu Haytham came back with a, um, you know, jug like a water sack, a jug full of water, and he was carrying it. فَوَضَعَهَا He put it down. ثُمَّ جَاءَ يَلْتَزِمُ النَّبِيَّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ He put the jug down and he ran up to the Prophet ﷺ and he hugged the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ is at his house. He is at his house. He was so excited. Put the jug down and ran up and hugged the Prophet. وَيُفَدِّهِ بِأَبِيهِ وَأُمِّهِ 
And he basically thanked profusely the Prophet for coming. And they had a particular expression where they would say, I would sacrifice my father and mother. I'd sacrifice anything for you. I'd give anything up for you, O Messenger of God. You being here is such an honor for me. He said, please come with me. And he took them to a particular garden that he owned. And he put down this spread, kind of the tablecloth. Then he went, he climbed up one of the trees and he broke off, you know, some branches of the date palm tree and he brought them down to them. And so basically what's said here in between the lines is when he came down with those branches, with those different bunches of dates, he had some that were ripe, he had some that were half ripe, he had some uh, that were not ripe at all. They were still very, very fresh. Because different people used to have different tastes and used to like the, the different types of dates. So the Prophet said to him, Why didn't you just bring us the ripened dates? You should have just brought us the ripened dates. فَقَالَ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ he said, O oh, Messenger of God, I wanted you to be able to choose whatever it is that you like. Whether you like ripe or half-ripe dates, whatever you know pleases you, O oh, Messenger of God, whatever you would like. So they ate the dates and they drank some of that sweet water that he had brought. The Prophet said at this point, the Prophet ﷺ said, I swear to God, these are the very blessings that you'll be asked about on the day of resurrection. You're sitting here under this cool shade, enjoying these very beautiful fresh dates, drinking this very clean, sweet, fresh water. Then he said, now let me actually prepare some proper dinner, some food. Let me cook something. فَقَالَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمُ The Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم said, لَا تَذْبَحَنَّ ذَاتَ دَرٍ The Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم said, do not cook an animal, do not sacrifice an animal that can provide milk. And there's other narrations of the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم where he said, لَا تَذْبَحُوا الْحُلُوبَ the Prophet ﷺ would advise people not to sacrifice an animal that can give milk. Because that is more beneficial to the family. It provides milk. But rather the Prophet ﷺ said, uh, it says, فَذَبَحَ لَهُمْ عَنَاقًا أَوْ جَدْيًا Rather what he did was, Abu Haytham, he went and he sacrificed either one of the male sheep, right, uh, or goats, or a more younger animal. And he cooked it and he brought it to them and they basically ate the meal together. The Prophet is marveling at all of this. He sees Abu Haytham going and you know, uh, walking out to some far out well and bringing water back, carrying water jugs back. And then he sees him climbing up on a tree and breaking dates off. Then he sees him going and sacrificing an animal and cooking the food. And so the Prophet said, Do you have any assistants around here? Do you have any servants, anyone who can do some work for you? Any workers, any laborers? Do you have any help? فَقَالَ لَا He said, no, I do not. فَقَالَ فَإِذَا أَتَانَا سَبْيٌ فَأْتِنَا 
So he said that, the Prophet said the next time, we have some slaves or some servants and basically come and see me and maybe we can provide you with some, with some assistance around here. Two servants were presented in the presence of the Prophet and فَأَتَاهُ أَبُوا الْهَيْثَمُ Abu Haytham came to him, basically saying, O Messenger of God, you told me to come and see you. فَقَالَ نَبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمَ اِخْتَرْ مِنْهُمَا Go ahead and choose some help. فَقَالَ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ اِخْتَرْ لِي He said, O Messenger of Allah, you please choose for me. فَقَالَ نَبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمَ إِنَّ الْمُسْتَشَارَ مُؤْتَمَنٌ The Prophet said, the one who is consulted is in a position of trust. Meaning when someone asks for your advice, when someone asks for your counsel, you are in a position of trust. You have to be honest with the person, you have to be fair with the person. right? You have to put your own biases, you have to put your own prejudices aside. All right? Um, and just a little note before I move on, this little phrase, إِنَّ الْمُسْتَشَارَ مُؤْتَمَنٌ comes in many, many different other narrations as well. The Prophet said this so many occasions, so many times. Imam al-Bajuri, rahimullah ta'ala, uh, and in Ibn Hajar, rahimullah ta'ala, they, some of them basically comment by saying that, كَادَ, كاد, أن, uh, كاد أن يتواتر كَادَ هَذَا الْحَدِيثُ أَنْ يَتَوَاتَرَ That this hadith was very close to be rising to the level of mutawatir, which means that it, it, that's the highest level of a narration where it comes through so many multitude of sources. Alright? That it overwhelmingly becomes a fact of the religion. So this narration comes so many times. And the reason why I mention that is not only the benefit of it, but also this was such a fundamental principle of the religion. That the Prophet repeated this multiple times throughout his life. And that is, when somebody asks you for advice and counsel, then be honest with the person. Be fair to the person. Alright? No, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. So the Prophet then said, Take this of the two. Take this person of the two. فَإِنِّي رَأَيْتُهُ يُصَلِّي he said that because I have seen him praying. He is devout. He prays. And be sure to be very, very kind and good to him. Because he's devout, he prays. Abu Haytham goes home to his wife. He tells her what the Prophet said. He said, look, I brought home this help. And the Prophet ﷺ told me that he prays and said, I have to, we have to be very, very good to him. فَقَالَتْ إِمْرَأَتُهُ مَا أَنْتَ بِبَالِغِي مَا أَنْتَ بِبَالِغِي حَقٍ مَا She says to him, she says, you will not be able to fulfill the right of what the Prophet ﷺ has told you. The Prophet ﷺ said, you have to be very, very good to him. And you know what the standards of the Prophet ﷺ are. So you're not going to be able to live up to that standard. مَا قَالَ فِيهِ نَبِيُّ وسلم, إِلَّا The only way that you will be able to live up to the advice of the Prophet وسلم, is if you free the slave. You have to free him. قَالَ فَهُوَ He said, okay, then he's freed. He freed him on the spot. The Prophet وسلم, what's between the lines is that the Prophet وسلم, came to know about this whole situation, interaction. فَقَالَ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وسلم, 
إن الله لم يبعث نبيا ولا خليفة إلا وله بطانتان that every single prophet and leader that Allah ever sent Allah gave them two types of confidants bitana sahibu sir right it's basically what we call a confidant somebody who is very very trusted a very trusted personal advisor that every leader inevitably has one of two types of confidants one of two types of trusted advisors one type of trusted advisor is someone who gives them good advice and prevents them, warns them against falling into bad things. You know this phrase, enjoying the good, forbid the evil. Encourages them, motivates them, points out good opportunities and tells them to avoid bad situations. And some folks have the type of trusted advisors who do not care about the ruin and the destruction of that person. And this means two things. Either they do not stop the person from destroying others because they're in a leadership position so they can really wreak havoc on the lives of others. So they do not prevent that person from being a source of destruction in people's lives. And the second meaning of it is that they do not stop the leader, him or herself, from destroying themselves by basically becoming drunk with power. So he's saying that whosoever is able to save themselves from the ill advised, the ill advisor, the bad advisor, then that person has truly been protected. That that's the key to salvation. That's the path to salvation. Be very careful who you take advice from. And this, the Prophet ﷺ saying this, is basically complimenting the wife of Abu Haytham. That Abu Haytham is truly a fortunate person because he has the most amazing advisor in his personal life and his wife is a very wise, very devout, very pious person. And Abu Haytham is really, really lucky to have her. And overall, there's a lesson therein. The reason why Imam Tirmidhi brings this particular narration, even though there's tons of benefit in it as we just saw, but the reason why Imam Tirmidhi brings this particular narration in this chapter is basically the beginning of it when it talks about how the Prophet is hungry, walking around looking for food. Umar radiallahu ta'ala is hungry. Shows you the simplicity and how at times difficult the lifestyle of the Prophet truly was. The next narration, قال المصنف حدثنا محمد بن بشار قال حدثنا صفوان بن عيسى قال حدثنا عمرو بن عيسى أبو نعامة أبو نعامة العدوي قال سمعت خالد بن عمير وشويسا أبو الرقاد or Abu Ruqad قال بعث عمرو بن الخطاب رضي الله تعالى عنه عتبة بن غزوان وقال انطلق أنت ومن معك حتى إذا كنتم في أقصى excuse me حتى إذا كنتم في أقصى بلاد العربي وأدنى بلاد العجمي فأقبلوا حتى إذا كانوا بالمربد وجدوا هذا الكذان فقالوا ما هذه هذه البصرة فساروا حتى إذا بلغوا حيال الجسر حيال الجسر الصغير فقالوا ها هنا أمرتم فنزلوا فذكروا الحديث بطوله 
قال فقال عجبة بن غزوان لقد رأيتني وإني لسابع سبعة مع رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم ما لنا طعام إلا ورق الشجر حتى تقرحت أشداقنا فالتقدت بردة قسمتها بيني وبين سعد فما منا من أولئك السبعة أحد إلا وهو أمير مصر من الأنصار وستجربون الأمراء بعدنا Very interesting narration. Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu sent a sahabi. His name was Utbah bin Ghazwan. And he basically sent him to the farthest reaches of the Muslim territories at that time. And this was basically bordering the Persian Empire. He sent him out there and basically put him in charge of the boundary. Put him in charge of the border towns. Basically made him the mayor, the governor... Uh, the supervisor over the border region. And فَأَقْبَلُوا They went all the way there until they reached the point of Mirbad where they basically saw white colored stones. And they were not used to this. So when he saw this, people asked, some of the people that were in this group, what is this? What are these white stones? Where are we at? We've never seen this before. And so... He said that this is Basra. This is the region of Basra. This is where we're at. So they continued walking on forward until they came upon this small bridge. They came upon this small bridge. And they stopped there and they said, this is where we were told to stop. So they settled down over there. فَذَكَرُوا الْحَدِيثَ بِطُولِهِ Which means then they pulled out the instructions of Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu and they went through all the instructions Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu had given to them. He told us to do this, 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 and this. Right? That, that These are our responsibilities here. Utbah kind of gave a talk to the troops, the people that he had with him, the team that he had with him. To kind of create a little bit of perspective. Because it had been a very long, arduous journey. They were kind of camped out in the open. So there might have been some folks who were really fatigued and exhausted and tired. Maybe even a bit, you know, you know agitated. So he decided to kind of create some perspective and give his, fo- give his guys a little talk. And he said that, y'all should have seen me. When I was one of the seven people accompanying the Prophet ﷺ, and we had no food to eat to the point where we were eventually eating, we were chewing leaves off of trees. And because of chewing the leaves off the trees, it had basically torn up, it had scratched up the insides of our mouths. We had these sores that developed inside of our mouths. It was very painful. And he says that I, very surprisingly, found in my luggage that I had a sheet. And that was like, that was a luxury. That I had an extra blanket. Everybody else was just kind of wrapping themselves up in their clothing. They would just kind of wrap themselves up in their clothing and just try to sleep at night because they were so cold. But he says that I actually found a sheet. I found a blanket. So he says... I basically split up that blanket between myself and one of my travel companions, Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas, radiallahu ta'ala anhu. We split up that blanket. And he says, but today, each and every single one of us seven who was on that journey is appointed as a governor of a region of the Muslim territories today. 
that God brought that day, where the seven of us who were, you know, rolled up into balls and, and shriveling and, and, and you know, uh, whimpering in the cold, shivering in the cold at night, chewing on leaves of trees, even though our mouths and were getting torn up and we were getting blisters inside of our mouths, sores. But we, we went through all of that. But today came the day where we are all governors and supervisors of different regions of the Muslim territories and the Muslim empire. But then he adds a little bit of a note afterwards and he goes, And he goes, We were those people with the Prophet ﷺ and y'all still complain about us. Wait till you see the people that come after us. Wait for that. That'll be lots of fun. Alright? So he kind of left a little zinger in there. Alright? Yes, I did. Very good. Zakallah khair. Thank you. So that was hadith number six. If you go back, there's hadith number five. I'll go there now, inshallah. قال المصنف حدثنا عمر بن إسماعيل بن مجالد بن سعيد قال حدثني أبي عن بيان حد قال حدثني قيس بن حازم قال سمعت سعد بن أبي وقاص رضي الله تعالى عنه يقول إني لأول إني لأول رجل أهرق دما في سبيل الله وإني لأول رجل رمى بسهم في سبيل الله ولقد رأيتني أغزو في العصابة من أصحاب محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم ما نأكل إلا ورق الشجر والحبلة حتى تقرحت أشداقنا وإن أحدنا ليضع كما تضع الشات والبعير وأصبحت بنو أسد يعزرونني في الدين لقد خبت إذن وخسرت وضل عملي even before I translate this, because I'll just kind of translate it in a way that it makes sense, I'll give you a little bit of background, because there's some background to this. It won't make sense otherwise. <clears throat> Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas radiallahu ta'ala anhu had been sent as a governor for the region of Iraq by Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu. He was sent there to basically be the governor, the supervisor, the leader for the people of Iraq. And he went out there, and there were a lot. There was a lot of just uh, discontent. There were a lot of malcontents within that community. A lot of problem. Uh, a lot of problematic people, troublesome people. And what they did was they started slandering. They 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 started making things in, things up about Saad bin Abi Waqqas radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and they slandered him. And they actually filed a petition. They filed a petition to Umar bin al-Khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu. We don't like Sa'ad. We don't want Sa'ad telling us what to do. And obviously they knew that Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu is a man of principle. So some of these very, very tr- problematic people, troublesome people, and I understand how severe this is going to sound, but they slandered him and they said he doesn't even know how to pray properly. He doesn't even know the deen properly. Sa'ad bin Abi Waqqas. He's one of the people that, the, that, that, that was closest to the Prophet So he said he doesn't know how to pray properly. He doesn't know the deen properly. And they wrote this. Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu to quell the situation because it was getting really 
volatile. Umar radiallahu ta'ala sent a letter to Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas and he said, I want you to step down. I want you to step down. I'm not accusing you of any of this. I'm not validating their complaints against you. But it's just right now, it's a volatile situation. Wisdom needs to prevail. Cooler heads need to prevail. I need you to step down and Ammar will be in charge of them. Ammar bin Yasir. Part of the dynamic that some of them mentioned, even that actually was answered by Sa'ad bin Abi Waqqas. Sa'ad bin Abi Waqqas radiallahu ta'ala anhu was known to be just a little bit more of a quieter, kind of a more private person. And even that they basically said he doesn't come out a whole lot. And this man Sa'ad bin Abi Waqqas radiallahu ta'ala anhu disclosed later on that he said, I have basically one pair of clothes. And so whenever my clothes get dirty, I wash them and then I have to wait until they dry and then I can wear those clothes again. And the Prophet uh, and Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu said, I wish I had, a, I, had a, I had a whole army full of Sa'ads. I wish I had a whole room full of Sa'ads. Right? That's, he's a man of integrity. He's a man of simplicity. He's a governor of a country, an entire region, a state. And this man has one pair of clothing. But nevertheless, Sa'ad radiallahu ta'ala anhu did have a little bit more of a very straightforward, kind of stern, very quiet, private personality. Ammar bin Yasir radiallahu ta'ala anhu, radiallahu ta'ala anhu versus that was a little bit more, kind of a little bit more friendly, a little bit more outgoing. Um, and so Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu said that they kind of, seems like they, they need a little coddling. And Ammar is just a softer guy. So he said, you step down, let Ammar take over. But then Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu basically asked Sa'ad radiallahu ta'ala anhu about what they were saying. And Sa'ad radiallahu ta'ala anhu basically said that, oh, ya amir al-mu'mineen. There's no truth to this whatsoever. He even explained himself. Can you imagine? See, this is the humility of the companions. Sa'ad bin Abi Waqqas was one of the earliest Muslims. He actually was Muslim before Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu was. He was Muslim before Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu. He preceded Umar in his Islam. But Umar is in charge. And so he's saying, look, I know it's not valid, but this is what they're saying against you. And Sa'ad radiallahu ta'ala anhu said, who, who, who's going to question me? How dare you question me? Do you know what my record is? Would you like me to show the scars I have on my body defending the Prophet in the battlefield, protecting him? Would you? Would you like to see it? Right? But Sa'ad radiallahu ta'ala in the narration says that he actually explained to Umar. He said, let me explain to you how I would lead the prayer to, for them. When I would lead Isha, I would basically keep the first two rak'ahs very moderate. And then the second two rak'ahs, I would keep, make them shorter than the first two. And Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu, almost like very embarrassed, said, that's exactly how the Prophet used to pray. You have no, you don't need to explain yourself to us. We know who you are. We never believed those people to begin with. They're just troublesome people. They're nothing but trouble. Right? But nevertheless, that was the humility of Sa'ad radiallahu ta'ala anhu. But Sa'ad bin Abi Waqqas, this is what he's kind of responding to. The accusations against him. That he was somehow, you know, uh, he was not trustworthy or God forbid, he was not fair, etc., etc. He says that I was the first person to inflict losses upon the enemy in the battlefield, in this ummah. I was the first person to shoot an arrow from this ummah in the battlefield. He says that you should have seen me 
when I was with the Prophet of God, وسلم, when I was with a group, excuse me, when I was with a group of the companions of the Prophet وسلم, in a campaign, in an expedition, and we had nothing to eat except for leaves off of trees. And also what we would do is we would eat like um, just before sometimes a flower or certain leaves on particular types of trees, before they would blossom and they'd be like small little, uh, you know, kind of buds. They would be buds before they blossomed. We would just take that and we would just chew that. Just so we'd have something in our stomachs. Like that's what we were consuming, that's what we were eating. So much so that it tore up the inside of our mouths. We had blisters and sores and it was painful. It tore up our mouths. And he says that, and it got to the point, we were eating leaves. That this might seem a bit blunt. He's making a point. He's saying that so much so that when we would go to the restroom, our waste, our feces, looked like goat droppings. Because we were eating goat food. Human beings. We were eating leaves off of trees. What did you expect to happen? And he says, وَأَصْبَحَتْ بَنُوا Asad." You can feel the pain in his voice. Like in his words. And he said, these people, Banu Asad, that, that, that was the name of the people. He said, these people of Banu Asad today, they, they correct me in my deen. They reprimand me about my practice of the deen. And he says, لَقَدْ خِبْتُ he says, if I still don't even know how to pray, after having spent 20 plus years with the Prophet ﷺ, after having served by his side, after having served the ummah, been the first to do this, the first to do that, eating leaves off of trees, making sure that there would be Islam here today, and I still don't even know how to pray, then he says, I have failed. Then I failed. I am a total loser. And everything I've done is wrong up to this point. And you can see how troubled and bothered and hurt he is by this. But again, the reason why this particular narration, Imam Tirmidhi, rahimahullahu ta'ala, brings it is because it again talks about eating the leaves off of trees. Right. Right, again, because of just not having enough to eat. Right. <coughs> Understand from? He's saying that if what they're saying is true, and I spent 20 years with the Prophet and didn't even learn how to pray, there's nobody dumber than I am. So obviously I know how to pray. You dummies. Right? That's what he's basically saying. He said, how stupid are you people? You think I would, I would pray with the Prophet for 20 years and I wouldn't learn how to pray? Right? So, but he's being very... He's being very polite. He's saying, you do the math. I spent 20 plus years with the Prophet and you say I don't know how to pray. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely nowhere in the world at all. Alright? Hadith number 7. قال المصنف حدثنا عبد الله بن عبد الرحمن قال حدثنا روح بن أسلم أبو حاتم البصري قال حدثنا حماد بن سلمة قال حدثنا ثابت عن أنس رضي الله تعالى عنه قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم لقد أخفت في الله وما يخاف أحد ولقد أذيت في الله وما يؤذى أحد ولقد أتت علي ثلاثون من بين ليلة ويوم وما لي ولبلال طعام يأكله ذو كبد إلا شيء يواريه ابت بلال 
We talked about this narration previously that Anas radiallahu ta'ala anhu says that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said that I was threatened for the sake of Allah like no one else. I was hurt, harassed for the sake of Allah like anyone else. Unlike anyone. And 30 consecutive days and nights passed uh, for me and Bilal, there was nothing to eat that actually a living creature could eat. Like food. It's like an expression in Arabic means there was no food. Except for a little bit that Bilal used to hide in his clothing. It says that Bilal would hide in his armpit. And again, that's kind of an expression to mean kind of like the pocket. He would stash it. And we talked about this, that the reason why he would stash it is if the Prophet saw it, what would he do? He'd give it away to somebody. And again, we understand why Imam Tirmidhi brings his narration that for an entire month, Bilal and the Prophet lived off of a pouch of dates. A whole month. Two grown men, human beings, surviving off of a pouch of dates. قال المصنف حدثنا عبد الله بن عبد الرحمن قال حدثنا عفان بن مسلم قال حدثنا أبان بن يزيد العطار قال حدثنا قتادة عن أنس بن مالك رضي الله تعالى عنه أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم لم يجتمع عنده غداء ولا عشاء من خبز ولحم إلا على ضفف قال عبد الله قال بعضهم هو كثرة الأيدي this narration has come earlier in the Shama'il, in the chapter about what the Prophet ﷺ would actually eat. Anas who says that the Prophet ﷺ never in one day did he have both a lunch and a dinner. He never had two meals in one day that consisted of bread and meat. Never in one day did he have two meals, he never had two consecutive meals that consisted of bread and meat. Because we saw earlier, It'd be dates and water. The only exception to that was when maybe there was some hospitality. Somebody else had invited him. Somebody else had brought some food and brought a bunch of people together. And the meaning of the word dafaf, because it's a little bit of an interesting word in the Arabic language, it's, it doesn't have one meaning, it has a multitude of different meanings. Because it's a very interesting thing the Arabs would do a lot of times. The, what they would do is they would take three, four different words and they would merge them together into one word. Almost think of it like as a type of an acronym. So the dad would stand for diyafa, hosting people. The fa would basically refer to, um, you know, uh, you know, times of difficulty, not having a lot of food. The other fa would refer to basically people kind of bringing things together. Um, you know, so so the word dafaf can mean a lot of different things. But the teacher of Imam Tirmidhi. The teacher of Imam Tirmidhi, who he quotes here, Qala Abdullah ibn Abdul Rahman, as the teacher of Imam Tirmidhi, he says that the scholars have explained, Hu akathratul aidi, that meant a lot of people eating together, what, which basically what would happen is sometimes when nobody had enough food, then everybody would bring together whatever scraps, whatever couple of dates, whatever little bit they could dig up, they could scrounge together, and they would bring it all together, put it onto one sufra, put it onto one you know, table together, say bismillah, and everybody would eat together, and the blessing of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was such that it'd be enough for everyone. That that was the only time the Prophet ever ate bread and meat, a little bit of it, twice in the same day. Otherwise, the Prophet never enjoyed that luxury in his entire life. قال المصنف حدثنا عبد بن حميد قال حدثنا محمد بن إسماعيل ابن أبي فديك قال حدثنا ابن أبي ذئب 
عن مسلم بن جندب عن نوفل بن إياس الهذلي قال كان عبد الرحمن بن عوف لنا جليسا كان عبد الرحمن بن عوف لنا جليسا وكان نعم الجليس وإنه انقلب بنا ذات يوم حتى إذا دخلنا بيته ودخل فاغتسل ثم خرج وأتينا بصحفة فيها خبز ولحم فلما وضعت بكى عبد الرحمن فقلت يا أبا محمد ما يبكيك فقال هلك رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم ولم يشبع هو وأهل بيته من خبز الشعير فلا أرانا أخرنا لما هو خير لنا عبد الرحمن بن عوف رضي الله تعالى عنه this, this um, Muslim scholar he is a tabi'i Nawfal al-Hudhali he says that Abdurrahman bin Awf was someone whom we had the pleasure of enjoying his company. We benefited from his company. We would go and sit with him and benefit from him and learn from him. He was one of the most senior, most companions of the Prophet One of the people promised paradise in that one gathering. So he said we used to enjoy his company and he said he was the best company. He was one of the best people, most beneficial people you would ever sit with. And he says that one day he came back with us from somewhere, from outside, and we went into his home. So it must have, maybe he was, you know, sweaty or dirty, he had been outside for some time. So he was very hospitable, very polite. Um, and so he went in and he kind of washed himself off, he bathed, you know, and, and cleaned himself off. And then he came and he sat with us. And when he came and sat with us, someone, because Abdurrahman bin Auf was a very elderly person at this time. He was a senior companion of the Prophet People used to respect him a tremendous amount. So he says, somebody brought a tray of food. Somebody brought a tray of food. They, they knew Abdurrahman radiallahu ta'ala was home. He was having some guests over. So they brought a tray of food. And in that tray of food, there was meat, there was bread. When the tray was put down in front of him, he started to cry. He started to cry. And we said, oh Abu Muhammad, that was his kunya. Why do you cry? What makes you cry? And he says, the Prophet ﷺ left this world and neither he nor his family, neither he nor his family ever got to fill their stomachs with bread made from wheat or barley. They never got to fill their stomachs with bread made from barley. And bread made from barley, by the way, that's why I got the translation wrong. In wheat bread, there's a narration in the Shama'il that says the Prophet never even ate wheat bread in his life. Wheat was finer, was considered nicer than barley. But even barley bread, which was like what they refer to as an expression all the time as peasant food, very simple food. The simple food of the common folk. That even that barley bread, they never even had enough to actually satisfy their hunger. They never, in his entire lifetime, they never had that. Fala arana. He says that, I feel that we have been delayed in departing from this world. And we now find ourselves in luxuries and things that are no good for us. I feel like we haven't been delayed to experience something good. This is not good. There's another narration in the Sahih, similar, where Abdurrahman bin Awf radiallahu ta'ala anhu, 
he sits down and someone brings him some food. And when they bring him some food, then they put it down in front of him and he starts to cry. And he says, why do you cry? And he says that, Musab bin Umair huwa khayrun minni. Musab bin Umair was, was a better man than me. And he died. He gave the ultimate sacrifice and left his world. Hamza to Abdul Muttalib. Hamza, the uncle of the Prophet, he was a better man than me. They both were martyred in the Battle of Uhud. Abdurrahman bin Auf was seriously injured in the Battle of Uhud. He had such a serious wound on his leg, he limped for the rest of his life. It said that he suffered 30 wounds on his body the day of Uhud. So this is not somebody who hadn't made any sacrifices. This man had made plenty of sacrifices. But he's sitting there just crying and he's saying, they were better than I am. And they left this world making the ultimate sacrifice and here I am enjoying luxury now. And I feel like all my good deeds are being paid off here in this world. I don't want that to be the case. And he just sat there and cried and cried and cried and he just told them, you guys eat the food, I can't eat this. And actually towards the end of his life, that interaction, this, this incident, it said towards the end of his life, this became a very regular thing with him. Anytime, you know, because people used to love him and respect him and look after him. And every time they would serve him some really nice food, he would just break down into tears. The Prophet never ate this. What am I doing here? Why am I still here? What am I doing? It was just a different mindset. You know, the obvious question that follows after that is that, well, is it impermissible? Is it wrong? Absolutely not. Nobody's talking about permissibility. But it's a different mindset. It's living for a different purpose. It's, not, it's, it's, it's eating to live, not living to eat. It's a completely different mindset. There's something, there was something more important to them. We all know this. Right? You talk to somebody who maybe kind of has like a, a, you know, a job they start off with, an entry level job. They're just kind of entering the workforce. You know, a young person kind of gets you know, some type of job just to be able to buy books or pay some bills or whatever. What happens at lunchtime? They've already figured out from before where they're going to go. Where are we going for lunch today? So excited. Right? They know exactly where they're going. It's a big deal. Then you ever seen somebody who really is passionate about their work? Think about, think about an entrepreneur or businessman, somebody who runs their own business. Ever seen somebody like that? You can come and ask them, hey, did you have lunch? They'll be like, what's that? Well, you, you don't want to eat? Who's got time to eat? I got something more important to do. Because they believe in what they're doing. They believe in what they're doing. They don't have time for this nonsense. Right? So it's a completely different mindset. It's very, very hard for us to grasp a lot of times. And then we get into these rationalizations. And then we're trying to get, turn it into an argument or a discussion of fiqh. Well, is it permissible? Is it not permissible? Is it okay? Is it not okay? That's completely missing the boat. That's quite literally called missing the point. It's just having a higher calling, having a higher purpose. Deciding that you want your life to mean something more. And in conclusion, I wanted to share just a couple of things. I understand it's been a while, but I don't care. So, um, <laughs> Imam Tabarani, rahimahullah ta'ala, has another hadith of the Prophet It says that, Ahlu shabi 
Ahlul ju'i fil akhirah. People who eat to their fill, people who live luxurious lives in this world and never have ever felt what hunger is in this world. Like they, they, they live like they opulent, indulge, indulgent lifestyles. They will be the people who will be starving and hungry in the life of the hereafter. May Allah protect us all. In another narration it says, Ashba'ukum fi dunya, ajba'ukum fil akhirah. The people who more indulge into food in this world will be that much more hungry in the life of the hereafter. The scholars used to say, this is so remarkable. Scholars used to say, You know when you're going out somewhere really, really nice to eat? You know, you're in your backyard, you're grilling some steaks. You, won't, you don't want to spoil your appetite. Somebody comes out there, with some food, right? They're like, hey, you're like, no, 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 get away from me. I'm gonna murder the steak, right? So it's a thing, like you, you, you wanna enjoy your food. They used to say, to enjoy the food in paradise, save a little room in this world, please. Try not to eat yourself to death in this world. However, as I said that, you know, the, the point that Imam Bajuri makes that the criticism, the critique here is not of just eating, and you know, not just eating food. But it's that indulgence where that becomes the objective of your life. That's what you live for. Otherwise, what did Allah say in the Quran? Ya God commanded us, eat. He just said, don't be excessive. Don't be indulgent. Right? The, in the authentic narration, the Prophet says, The worst container a human being can fill is their stomach. That what suffices a human being is to eat a few small bites that allow you to stand up straight. The Prophet said, if you do have an appetite, you do need to eat a bit more. Then a third for food, a third for water, and a third just empty. The Prophet said, wisdom cannot enter a person who is filled with food. There's no room for the wisdom to go. And when you eat less, you'll drink less. You will sleep more efficiently. And you'll actually have barakah and blessing in your life. You'll get more done. Because you just won't be unconscious 12 hours of a day. Somebody somebody who eats excessively, they think very little. The itis, right? But all jokes aside, the hard, the heart becomes hardened. The heart no longer remains reflective. Because you just move from eating to just trying to deal with how much you've eaten, to then passing out, to then waking up, and then going to the restroom, and then restarting that cycle. Right? It's a tragic lifestyle. The Prophet Anas the very famous narration, this one very just mind-blowing, where Fatima radiallahu ta'ala anha comes to the Prophet with some bread. 
And he says, what's this? What's the occasion? What's going on? And she says, nothing. I just made some bread and I didn't want to eat it by myself. I thought of you. And the Prophet ate the food and he swore by God that this is the first morsel of food that has entered your father's mouth after three days. Mundu thalathati ayyam. I hadn't eaten for three days. Thank you so much for bringing me some food. Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha about the character of the Prophet She says that he would never ask, like demand, like food. Whatever they put in front of him is what the Prophet would eat. Imam Bajuri rahimahullahu ta'ala says people get distributed into four types. There are people who do not care for worldly indulgences and the world doesn't necessarily entertain them either. They don't care about worldly things and worldly things never are given to them. Like, I'm not ending. Like Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Like Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Didn't care for dunya and he gave away all his dunya and he never had a lot of money. Then there's another type. They don't care about the dunya. But the dunya comes after them, offers itself to them. Like Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu. When he became Khalifa, the whole world fell to the feet of the Muslims. He didn't care for it though, but it fell at his feet. Then there are people who chase after the dunya and they get a lot of dunya. <laughs> and he takes kind of a shot. He talks about the, the kings of Banu Umayyah, the Abbasid and the Umayyad dynasties who came. He said they, 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 they were obsessed with worldly material gain and they had a lot of it too. And then he says that there are those people who obsess over the world, but they never gain anything material and that becomes a tragic test for them. It can break them a lot of times. Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha tells her nephew one time, Oh nephew, Wallahi, yabna ukhti, listen son. He was like a son to her, she raised him, he was her nephew. She says, listen son, I swear to God, we the family of Muhammad sallallahu would wait, one month would pass, then another month would pass, then a third month would pass, and we never had anything to cook in the home of the Prophet And he says, Ya khala, dear aunt, فَمَا بِقُوتِكُمْ Like what did you used to eat? How would you survive? She said, Al-Aswadani At-Tamaru Wal-Ma We would drink water and eat some dates. And then she even says, إِلَّا أَنَّهُ كَانَ لِرَسُولَ Jiran min al-ansar. She said, may God bless the ansar. We had some neighbors of the ansar and they would sometimes bring us some food. They would sometimes milk their animals and bring some milk for us, for the Prophet That was the only time the Prophet got a break from dates and water when some of the neighbors brought over something. May Allah reward them. She says, ما شبع آل محمد ثلاثة أيام إشباعا حتى قبض رسول الله We never had food three days in a row. There was always... If we had food two days in a row, the third day we'd have nothing to eat in the house. That was the whole life of the Prophet ﷺ. In the hadith of Sahih Muslim, Like we talked about, he never got to eat bread and something with that bread in the same day. In another hadith, the Prophet ﷺ says, Be very careful of being very overindulgent. Becoming overindulgent, obsessive. فَإِنَّ عِبَادَ اللَّهِ لَيْسُوا بِالْمُتَنَاعِمِينَ The true slaves of God are people that don't indulge in these types of things. They live for a higher purpose and a higher calling. They live to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
And of course, the Prophet ﷺ in an authentic narration in the book of Tirmidhi, Jami'ud Tirmidhi, he actually says, God made me an offer that he would turn the mountains of Mecca into gold. He made me an offer. He would turn the mountains of Mecca into gold. And I need to pay very close attention here. We sometimes delude ourselves. We have this very troubling rhetoric that somehow the ummah will reclaim its glory, glory if we just have enough money. Money and power. And we'll end up back on top. The Prophet says, God made me an offer that he would turn all the mountains of Mecca into gold. قُلْتُ لَا يَا رَبِّي I said, no, my master, no. أَشْبَعُ يَوْمًا I prefer to be able to eat one day and feel satisfied and thank you and praise you. فَإِذَا جِعْتُ And the next day when I feel hungry and I don't have anything to eat, نَذَرْتُ إِلَيْكَ وَذَكَرْتُكَ I will spread my hands in front of you and beg you. I will ask you. وَإِذَا شَبِعْتُ شَكَرْتُكَ وَحَمَدْتُكَ one day when I eat, I thank you. The next day I'm hungry, I beg you and I ask you. The next day I eat, I thank you. I prefer to live my life that way, never forgetting about you. All right. I was just checking to see if I had any other particular points and notes that I wanted to make particularly and... Just one second, I'm sorry. All right, with that, inshallah, sorry about just kind of the um, end right there. I just wanted to make sure there wasn't anything I missed. Uh, very, very important, very thought-provoking, very challenging topic and issue. But it's for our own spiritual growth and our own benefit. Really, um, some serious you know, soul-searching needs to be done in this regard. And again, I want to emphasize the point that we're not talking about permissibility or impermissibility. But what we are talking about is really availing the opportunity that we have. Being, you know, achieving the most that we can. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept from us all. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the ability to practice everything we've said and heard. Subhanallah bihamdi, subhanakallah bihamdik, nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nasakfir wa natubilaik. Very quickly, sister asked the question, um, you know, in the, in the uh, Arabic language, uh, a lot of times, the Prophet uh, we see in a couple of narrations, they would refer to dates and water as al-aswadan, the two black things. That was just an expression because again, it's called uslubu taghlib. So because dates are dark, so they would just kind of group things together. Like qamaran would mean moon and sun. So it was just that type of, that was just their style of speech.